1: All of us experience loss. It could be loss of a spouse, a child, our job, our home, a beloved pet or a dear friend. During the pandemic of 2020 and 2021, we're experiencing a collective mourning of hundreds and thousands who have died from the coronavirus. This is a loss on a global scale. Most advice treats grief as a problem to be solved rather than something to be explored. Every person has their own timing when it comes to grieving, and our guest today suggests that grief is a sign of deep love rather than a problem to be solved. The landscape of grief can be unspeakably difficult, and Claire Willis recommends that we allow ourselves to remain in the great brokenness of loss with our eyes and our heart open. In this way, grief can be seen as an invitation to grow and eventually to find meaning in suffering and in the experience of loss. Today we'll be exploring various practices that will illumine our broken hearts with our guest, Claire B. Willis. Claire B. Willis is a clinical social worker who works in the field of oncology and bereavement. She's co founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together and regularly leads bereavement end of life support and therapeutic writing groups. As a lay Buddhist chaplain, she focuses on contemplative practice for end of life care and maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. She's a co-author with Marnie Crawford Samuelson of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Join us for the next hour as we explore the power of grief and the wisdom it holds for us with our guest, Claire B. Willis. I'm speaking with Claire at her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Claire, welcome. Thank you, Justine, for having
2: me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: I'm just delighted to have you here. I mentioned in the opening that grief is a sign of deep love rather than a problem to be solved. So I'd love for you to make a comment about that,
2: please. You know, first of all, I want to say that introduction was so beautiful. So thank you for that. I read the, this these words that grief is love with no place to go, and it was written actually by Jamie Anderson. And I love the reframing of grief as love because then it doesn't become something to get over; it becomes a companion. Because if we've loved something that we've lost. then our grief should continue. We can't just stop loving someone because they're not here. So I think that reframing makes grief more legitimate in a culture that hasn't really liked the idea of grief. I think one of the things that happened with the arrival of COVID is that grief came into the culture in a way that it hadn't before. We, We read articles in the New York Times. We hear radio shows on NPR. We've seen articles in the Atlantic. So that the whole word grief has come into the culture in a way that I just completely welcome.
1: Exactly, and there was a moment of silence in the inauguration of Biden and Harris at the reflecting pool uh, where they had all of those lights that came on, and I think it was the night before the actual inauguration that they had this ceremony that was— a pause for all of us. Oh, it just brings tears to my eyes even right now thinking of it. Uh, And it was such a wonderful collective uh, moment of grieving and mourning
2: together and acknowledging. Do you remember what Biden said? He said something so beautiful. He said that the healing, that in order to heal, we have to remember. And I love that because that's another Sort of way of saying, don't push through it. It's important to remember what we've lost, who we've lost.
1: You know, uh, there was a a piece that I wrote, I think I sent you a copy of it called Descent to the Cave of Regret. And um, it was, it happened when I was watching, uh, it was stimulated by, I was watching a particular television program and suddenly I found myself i'm just burst into tears and even though my husband Michael Toms of over forty years um uh died more than seven years ago, you know sometimes it just um tears just come unexpectedly and i and i wrote i just i want just want to read a couple of sentences from that i said. The tears remind me that my heart is not numb. It is alive with feeling, touching my awakened heart and allowing myself to feel regret. I'm coaxing joy to begin to blossom. As I inhale its fragrance, I'm in awe at how both joy and regret can simultaneously share a place in the heart. To feel the light, I must also feel the dark. So that was a little part of that piece that I wrote. And, and it just reminds me of what you're saying uh, about love and about I really understood, oh, my heart is not numb. If I feel the tears, somehow I, I know I'm just alive and present in some way.
2: Is, is that your experience? Yeah, well, I think heal, in healing, we have to have feeling. <laughs> if we, we can't heal what we don't feel. And um, one of the things that about what you just wrote, which I just want to amplify a little bit, is that I think when people think of grief, they think of sorrow and despair and hopelessness. And in fact, grief includes anger, irritability, it includes regret, it includes gratitude, it includes joy. And one of the things that I often hear in my bereavement groups is some feeling of guilt if there's too much joy while they're grieving, that somehow they're abandoning the person they loved and lost by feeling joyful. And I, I tried to, to tried in my book to talk about grief as an umbrella for many feelings that can coexist and aren't, it's not one exclusion of the other. And I think a lot of people don't realize that irritability or impatience or anger or regret or gratitude are all components of grief. And it's so important to name all the ways grief can express itself, because there's really as many expressions of grief as there are people who grieve. And all those feelings can coexist.
1: <laughs> yeah. What a jumble inside us, How? which yeah. <laughs> reminds me, uh, how, how do we tell the difference between um, whether we're grieving or we're in a,
2: a kind of clinical depression? Yeah. With grief, grief comes usually in waves. we're not when we're grieving, we have moments where it breaks through, and we have moments where we have happiness. with depression, um our life is gray across the board. it's you, you don't have moments of light breaking through. and also in in depression, um i mean serious depression can be in people who really cease to function and that's a little bit different than grief where it comes and goes it comes and goes and it comes in waves and actually there's an interesting term called stug which is an acronym for sudden temporary upsurge of grief which often can happen so for instance you can be walking down the supermarket aisle and all of a sudden you see a can of tuna and you say oh, my husband loved that tuna, and you start to sob Mm -hmm. because you have a moment of remembering. And these are very normal feelings, and they're sudden, they're temporary, and there's an uprising, and they disappear usually within 24 hours. And I, I think it's important just to name them because people in my groups will often say, I really lost it. I lost it in the market. I thought I was doing so well and I lost it. And I said, You didn't lose it. You got it. You grasp the full Megillah the full catastrophe of the loss. And Stephen Levine says something really beautiful. He says, talks about looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look and turn away. We can't sustain our gaze or we would burn our eyes. And grief is like that. We have to experience it in waves, and and that protects our psyche from the magnitude of it.
1: I know uh, for me, after Michael died... um, Shortly after he died, I was in a grocery store, and it was around um, um, Valentine's Day. And, of course, the grocery store had all these displays of Valentines and flowers and everything. And, you know, Claire, I just, like the can of tuna, I just burst into tears, just absolutely sobbing in the grocery store. And, And part of it was just knowing I would never receive... A gift of flowers again from my my dear spouse. Although I I thought this year I'm going to do something different. I'm going to send myself flowers. Oh, <laughs> and I, beautiful! And That's uh, beautiful. You know, I mean, there there could be things like that 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 people can do that. Keep the memory alive and, and kind of playful. I mean, I, it's it's kind of playful. It's not a big deal. It's just sort of being playful with it and and just feeling what that might be feeling like to have flowers delivered. Even though they're from myself, I will feel like they're from him. You know?
2: He would want so, you to do that, too.
1: I love that. Thank you. Thank you. As you say, grief comes in waves, and I'm I'm thinking of um, also the the stages of grief that we're all familiar with. It's kind of everybody's sort of accepting them from Elizabeth Kubler Ross and David Kessler about the stages: grief, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and um, that had a certain order to it, but. The way you talk about grief, there's no appropriate like assumption, so to speak, that
2: it's going to follow this pattern, right? Well, those. I think it's important to say that those stages were actually written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to describe the stages of someone who is dying and losing their life. They were never intended to be applied to people who are grieving. Now, having said that, they people often go through those stages but not in a linear way and sometimes they don't <laughs> and so but what's happened is that people end up applying those stages to uh their their grief and then what happens is they experience themselves as coming up short and they're not doing it right and that's where i get um, that's what sort of drove me to write the book because I, it was so painful for me to hear people say, what's the matter with me? I'm not. I should be beyond this. Or,
1: Right. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Claire B. Willis, and she's a co-author with Marnie Crawford Samuelson of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Claire B. Willis, and she is the author of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, openingtogrief.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. We're we're talking about how different people will do it differently, and we (laughs) want—and— There's a tendency to compare ourselves to others, I think, you know, that, oh, am I doing it right? Or maybe that idea of get over it. A lot of people um, will give us so much time to grieve, our our friends, and then they're tired of us being in grief, and they want to help us get over it and move on. So what's your advice for that scenario?
2: Well. I, I think one of the things that's really important is when you're grieving is to find people who can be with your grief. The the thing of it is if if people will not be able to be with your grief if they're unable to be with their own. So I think when when a part of what's important, I think, about being with our own grief is that it will allow us to be with other people, our friends, in a more meaningful way. People will often try to help, and in helping, they don't want to see you upset because it's hard for them. They think they're helping you, but they're actually trying to help themselves as well. And it's well-meaning, but it's just not usually um, effective. I think the most important thing we can say to each other when we're grieving is, I want to hear all about your husband. I want to hear whatever you can tell me, or how can I support you at this difficult time? you have my listening ear, the willingness to listen and bear witness to another person's pain and sorrow is really important in terms of the healing because the healing is in hearing one another. And often when we have a shocking loss like a death, it, we have to tell and retell and retell the story of it in order to integrate it in ourselves and, and have it become real. It's just such a big event. That's such a powerful
1: statement. We have to retell and retell it. Uh, Go deeper into that. Why is it that we're set up that way, that that we need to retell the story over and over? And and when
2: does that retelling uh, end? Is there an end to the retelling? It depends on the person. It depends on the circumstances of the death, you know the retelling might be different for different for someone who is walking someone home with a slow uh, with a cancer diagnosis and a slow death versus somebody who comes home and finds their partner was killed in a car accident you know it's like the shock the, there's always shock and death but there's a different shock with a traumatic death than there is with a death where you know what's inevitable. You know, you're walking someone through an illness, and, and it's still a shock when they die because there's always a little part of us that doesn't want that to happen unless the person is really suffering, and then we might well be wishing them to leave sooner than later just to, to get out of their suffering and for us not to have to bear witness to it. You know, that's...
1: I, I think you're making an important point there. Um, in, in a long-term illness... That we've had plenty of time to prepare for our loved one's death. Um, that we've accom- if we're accompanying them along the way, and then when they die, I I often think nothing really can prepare us for that shock. I mean, no matter how well prepared we think we are, right. the finality. Of the passing is so strong it it's it has its
2: impact. I see you nodding your head yes, yes. It, it you know it's there is no way someone can die without I think a loved one feeling shocked, even when in the face of all odds, you've known for however long that it was coming, and you've watched it happen. There's still an element of shock it's just it's you know here one minute gone the next how do you how do you take that in? <laughs> You know, as sick as someone was. You know, I
1: remember um, Michael and I were at, were present at the death of his mother. And it was not unexpected, as as we're talking about. And we were at her bedside. I was on one side of the bed, and he was on the other. And I was... Shocked. I mean, Michael was a deep, deep um, Buddhist practitioner, and and also um, even has gone back a bit to his Catholic roots and so forth and so on. And very, very spiritual. And I was shocked that when she finally passed and took her last breath, he started to sob just. Absolutely. I've never seen him cry like he yeah. cried in that moment, which really surprised me. And and what I did, I, I didn't go over to the other side of the bed and, and hold him and touch him in any way. I, I kind of knew this was a very important moment for him, and I didn't want to interfere. So, But what spontaneously came to me, was a chant, a Buddhist chant that we uh-huh. had done and I just started chanting. And that's oh, you know, Om Manipadma om, you know. I just it just came out of me spontaneously and I just that's that's all I did and just allow the
2: moment of his um uh, deep deep grief. That's so beautiful. What a perfect thing to do. What you're saying is so important that our temptation is to go comfort them. And I think if we can offer one another our deepest presence to be willing to be with somebody in that kind of excruciating pain, that's the ultimate gift. And not to try to push it away because the the feeling is how it's going to heal. The feeling is the healing is in the feeling of it. So letting ourselves really let it rip like that, you know, that kind of sobbing and sobbing. We all even when someone's sick, don't we always just hope that they might make it through? <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. And don't you feel like somehow if we interfere with that process, um it's actually we're we're afraid for them. It's it's a kind of fear base that I'm afraid that he can't handle this, I'm afraid that That's he's right. not strong enough for this, uh, and and yet it's as you said it's really my own fear of myself that right. I'm not strong enough for That's this right. to hold it, and I loved it that you gave us um, words to say that if somebody's in deep stress and in grief. Uh,
2: to just simply ask, how can I be of help, or tell me whatever you want me to, whatever you feel like you want to talk about them. I want to hear about what you loved. I want to hear about them. With that, Claire, I, I'm
1: thinking, and you you touch on this in your book. It's about talking about. I think somebody asked the question uh, that if we describe. Our loved one in all of their fullness, their wounds and their their oh. triumphs and all of that, and and is it okay? And I, I, you know, what I noticed with myself that I, there are those people who are close to my relationship with Michael and saw it up close and really know us. And with certain people, I can be very, very candid, Claire, about our relationship—the good and the bad. But I only do it with people who I know respect and love Michael like I did. You know, so even if they know the bad, they also hold not just that. Does that make
2: sense? It makes absolute sense. You know, there's a a saying, don't speak ill of the dead, which is a terrible saying because it doesn't allow— Probably one of the biggest obstacles to people's grieving that they can experience because it doesn't allow for the full expression of the complexity of human relationships. No relationship is all beautiful and good and loving. Every relationship is complicated. And we need to talk about the places that weren't so good when someone dies as well. But you're right, we have to, we can't talk about those places with people who will join us and turn on our loved one. We need to talk about them with people who knew the good and understand the bad and bring with it a compassion and understanding rather than a demonizing of the other. It's so important to talk about all the aspects of who you've lost, all the complexity. The only only love that's pure and unconditional is the love we have for a pet.
1: (laughs) Oh well, there's a big one because I I notice that uh, I, I can easily cry for animals for my pets. I mean, it just the, the there's no problem for the tears to just flow. But when it's uh, like my mother or someone like that, I, it. it and, you know, Claire, I almost feel that it's—I can't cry for her because if if I did, my tears would never stop, maybe. I don't know. But it, it just feels so cathartic to, claw, to, to
2: cry about an animal. Or, what is that? Do you well, have— it, I, it, it, the, An animal, the, the love between a human being and an animal is pure, and it's unconditional, and it's simple. There's never a complication to it. There's never harsh words. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no arguing. You have an animal that does, that's at your call, basically. And it's a pure love. It's just pure. And our human relationships are much more complicated. We love, but we love differently. And it's not a greater love or a lesser love. It's a different love. I don't like to put it in a hierarchy. Um, I I think it's important just to describe it as something different. But I think one of the things that I I wanted to do in my book is to address pet love because it's a disenfranchised love. It's a love that the culture doesn't uh, really pay a lot of attention to. And last March 1st, I had to put down my beloved cockapoo, who I just adored, and he had a nasal cancer. And I had no idea that a week later I was going to be housebound in this COVID. But... I, I I can still, I can cry so easily about that. Even now, I miss that animal more than I can say, even though I have another dog now. Um, and I love that dog, but I love the other dog differently. And it's a very particular feeling. It's not like a human love.
1: And I think that we have to pay attention to not short shrift our, our friends and neighbors, um, who are grieving over their animal companions? That
2: is no small thing. That uh, yeah, I was wanting so badly to have a little service for him. I wanted to gather my friends and and spread the ashes with them. And then COVID came, and I realized there was there are no cultural rituals for that kind of thing. You have to do that yourself. There's, and people don't expect. That they don't expect you to have a gathering for the loss of an animal somehow it's a lesser than loss culturally and I right. I wanted I wanted these disenfranchised griefs to be recognized in my book. you know, fertility is another one the lo- loss of fertility and there's many more.
1: We'll talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Claire B. Willis, and she, along with Marnie Crawford Samuelson, are the co-authors of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. I'm Justine willis Toms You're listening to New Dimensions. <music> I'm here with Claire B. Willis, and we're talking about Opening to Grief, which is the title of her book. And um, you were just saying there are other kinds of more hidden griefs, sorrows, uh, and you were starting to say someone, let's say, we're, well, all right, I can give an example. Um, Someone, uh, for myself, my women's group, everybody in my women's group is partnered. They all have partners, um, except for me, and like my partner passed on. So there's kind of this kind of sorrow. Whenever I'm kind of in their presence in some way, there's this kind of underlying sorrow uh, that I don't have the same in my life that they do. Or as you were going to say uh, about someone who is trying to get pregnant— and having, you know, difficulty getting pregnant. And then they're among their friends that are all have children and everything and that kind
2: of sorrow. I'd love your comments on that. Um, Stephen Levine calls these untended sorrows. And I like that. It, it, another word is that they use in the literature is disenfranchised. But there's so many expressions of—there's so many— sorrows that we don't stop and give credence to as sources of sorrow. So, for instance, infertility, miscarriages. You, you don't see people holding services for a miscarried baby. Why not? You know, um, Dementia. Or the, when people retire, they may want to retire, but there's a huge grief that comes with retirement as people lose community. And also, I think to your your comment, Justine, about losing your husband, one of the things that happens when we when we have a primary loss, such as a partner or a best friend or a spouse, is that there's the loss of that person, which is called primary loss. And then there are myriad other losses that come with it, which is in the literature is called secondary losses. But they are not secondary in impact by any measure. In fact, sometimes they're more primary than the person who died. So I had someone in my bereavement group say to me the other night, she had a 30-year relationship with a man. And she said, I miss not being in a couple more than I miss my partner. And I thought that was an interesting comment. And there was a lot of nodding in the room. But other secondary losses can be the, the shifting, w- the way our friendships shift after the loss of a partner. Some people disappear. Other people come forward that you may not have expected. Most people lose some kind of economic stability. Sometimes you may lose your home. You lose a co-grandparent. You may lose a co-parent. You may lose the person, a travel companion, someone with whom you planned your retirement. There's there's so many losses that accompany the a primary loss that are very impactful on someone's life and are to be noted as griefs and sources of loss, too.
1: There's another, another aspect to loss and, and grief, I think. I recently did an interview with a volunteer fireman, uh, Hirsch right. Wilson, He's also an EMT, and it's just his book is called Firefighter Zen. I highly recommend it, Hirsch Wilson. And um, there's a little piece in there. He calls it Time Shows Up. And I just want to read this because it's just so profound to me Uh, when we're working with different people who are grieving and who have lost someone. um, He said, there are formalities of death funerals obituaries eulogies gathering gatherings and comforting and other milestones and mileposts and then he writes and then all of the functions are done and we are alone those are the hardest times when ceremonies are over and the full weight of the death Presses down. And then he goes on to say something that I know you'll agree with, Claire. He says, I have a problem with the word recover. <laughs> and he said, it implies that after a trauma, somehow we recover to a former state. Mm-hmm. And he says, closer to the truth is that we get better, but we don't go back to the way things were, right. the way we felt, the innocence we had. We get better, but we are permanently altered, That's right. okay? That's right. That's right. We incorporate those events into ourselves, and they change us. It's like breaking a bone or having major surgery. We heal, but we know something is different. And then he ends this passage with, We will have memories, flashbacks, aching moments of sadness. We are changed, but our lives, who we are, and will be belong to the future, and I Beautiful. just I, I just love that that uh, when when we're being kind to people who are grieving. Um, and right after a death, you know, there's all this flurry of activity. And then what happens later, two, three, four months, a year later? I mean, can we keep an anniversary for a friend and write to her or him and say, oh, I realize this is the anniversary of your loved one's death or or your your little doggie's death. I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. Something like that, you know, that...
2: We're not just left out there hanging. Well, you, you've actually said a lot of things. And one of the things that I want to respond to is that when someone first dies, there are all kinds of material tasks that we have to take care of. And we have to just cope with what's happened. After that's, and, and that, this is in part what that author's writing about, which I think is so important, is that after that settles down and those issues are, those, Those tasks are complete. We start to deal with the impact of what's happened because there's, a, there's an emptiness in our life that sets in because we don't have the structure of these jobs and tasks. And I one of the things that I often say to people is that there's a dialectic between coping and dealing. When we're coping, we can't deal with our feelings. And when we're dealing, we can't cope with our life. And we have to choose between coping and dealing at different points. So I happen to work with people with cancer. And when you first get a diagnosis, you have to cope with it. You have to find it doctor. You have to figure out a treatment. You have to figure out where you're going to get your treatment. There's just, you have to learn about your disease. And then after that's in place, you start to deal with, wow, I've got cancer. How is this going to change my life? And it's a little bit like, it, and it's and it's a big grief because your life is never the same, but is it better? Parts of it, you know, I, I don't want to, I would never use the phrase, the gifts of cancer, but I would often say that when you get cancer, there are gifts that emerge that you discover about yourself that you had no other way of knowing. That you find unexpected strengths. You find uh, reprioritizing of your life, and I think it's it's a little bit like that around death and loss. That often we f- discover things about ourselves that our partner carried that we didn't have to cultivate. Uh, we develop parts of ourselves that were carried by them. And we become wholer in the process if we use our grief to do that.
1: So I I know that you have uh, quite a few beautiful suggestions and instructions about how to cope with grief. I've written down about seven of them. Uh, So I don't know. I know we can't cover all of those, but... The the first one is offering kindness yeah. to ourselves. Tap into the Buddhist meta practice. Um, so
2: offering kindness to ourselves. <laughs> Begin where we are, huh? Well, I you know, it's funny. I it was really important to me to start the book, have the first chapter called Be Starting with Kindness, because what motivated me to write the book. Was how unkind people were towards their grief, in my groups. What's the matter with me? I shouldn't still be feeling this way. Oh, I had a bad day. I had a setback. I thought I was doing well. Um, I'm not. I'm not at the right stage. I mean, all these ideas they had about what grief should look like. And so I thought, Marnie and I said, starting with kindness has to be the most important thing. That we start with gentleness towards ourselves, and we start with with a meta-meditation, which means tender friend. And we we start each chapter in the book with a poem that's usually very poignant and accessible, and we close each chapter with um, a, a meditation, which is uh, it's called meta, but it means loving kindness or tender friend. And it starts with phrases. For instance, the, in the first chapter, I think it's something like, may I accept all my feelings of grief? May I allow my feelings to tenderize my heart? things like that so that w- you're saying positive loving kind things to yourself and that felt like a really important way to start the book for us because That's it, it was unkindness yeah. towards one towards people unkindness people had towards themselves that just so moved me to write the book i it's so painful to hear people talk about shame and guilt around the the the, the grief they're feeling because It's just the love. It's just the love with no place to go, you know? And we're often uh,
1: harder on ourselves than we are to our friends. We would never say to our friends what we say inside our own head. Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And then then you also write about um, a gratitude journal and... um, that it's helpful in rewiring what Rick Hansen talks about, about rewiring the negative bias of our brain. And that gratitude journal is is very helpful in that way. Can, can you describe?
2: One of the things that we write about is the importance of keeping a gratitude journal. And it, 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 at the end of the day, writing down three positive things. Now, this may sound very strange in the face of grief when the last thing you're feeling is gratitude. What happens to our brains, our brains are hardwired to notice what's wrong. We, it, we have a negative habituation. And it's not, a, it's not a bad thing because it's really what's helped us survive as a species. But it's something that doesn't serve us fully. So when we're grieving, it's important to fully express our grief, but it's also important to notice alongside it what else is good. So we're not talking about being grateful at the expense of what's wrong. We're talking about finding what's right in equal measure to what's wrong. And so by keeping a gratitude journal at the end of the day and making that commitment to write down three or four gratitudes a day, you start to look for something the next day that you can write. And it redirects the negative habituation of your mind. So, if Justine sent out an, an evaluation after this interview and said, um, "Please rank order what you what, from one to ten how Claire's talk was," and let's say ninety people wrote it was a ten, and one person wrote it's a nine. Where's my attention going to go? It's going to go to the negative. Now, so even knowing this. If I would still do that. <laughs> and that's how strong it is for all of us. So when you notice something that's positive, Rick Hansen, this neuropsychologist, says, linger with it for 10 to 30 seconds. Stay with it. Let the goodness of it wash over you. And you slowly begin to rewire your brain so you might say to yourself why is this important this is important because it helps you hold your grief it helps you hold suffering and difficulty so you're strengthening yourself I'm here with Claire Willis and
1: she is a co-author of Opening to Grief Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace I'm Justine Willis-Toms you're listening to New Dimensions (music) I'm here with Claire B. Willis, and she's a co-author of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. There are many things we could talk about in these few minutes that we have together. I I wanted to talk about uh, writing as a refuge. Um, And we may not think that we're much of a writer, but you mentioned some um, research that is done by psychologist James Pennybaker on expressive writing. For me, I don't even know what I'm thinking until I write it down, (laughs) until I do some writing about it. And then suddenly it, I I don't know, it just comes alive for me uh, rather than just these amorphous thoughts. To get it down on paper somehow works for me. So what can you say about writing
2: as a refuge? Well, I mean, I think what you're saying makes complete sense. One of the things that writing does is that you have to structure and organize your thoughts in some way. So James Pennybaker's research basically says that if you write three to four times a week for up to six weeks, expressive writing, just writing what's what's bothering you, what's hard for you— um you actually improve your immune system, you reduce anxiety, and you can reduce your depression. That's one way of using writing, and that's one suggestion in the book. But another thing that I've heard a lot in my bereavement groups is I don't want to ever forget, and they'll say something about their husband. I don't want to ever forget, they'll say something about their wife. And one of the writing practices that I often suggest people do, and there's a book by this title, by... um, I can't think of his first name. It's called I Remember by Brainerd. And the whole book is nothing but a sentence I remember. And then Brainerd writes what he remembers. And then the next sentence, I remember. And the whole book is nothing but I remember. And I've often suggested to people who are grieving to write down, to take the time to remember, because you will forget. You will absolutely forget what you think you will never forget. And you can remember by taking the time out to remember. Memories will come forth that wouldn't come forth if you didn't take the time. And I think having that, as it can be a real treasure for people, um, a collection of memories, both for their children, for their grandchildren, for relatives, for people that love the person you loved. And so I think that's a, a very valuable writing practice.
1: And I, I just want to encourage people too that they don't have to be a great writer. Their know. grammar doesn't have to be perfect, oh. and um, you know, spelling, same punctuation. You know, forget all of that. Just, just, just kind of get it down on paper. Uh, isn't that the way you would suggest? Oh yeah,
2: don't edit. Oh, you don't don't do any grammatical anything. Just write. Um, another thing that people have done is they've written unsent letters to loved ones. And um, I, I had someone in my writing group who every Thursday on the day her partner had died wrote her a letter and to tell her what her week had been like. And I thought it was a very sweet practice. A lot of people in the group started to do that too. So writing unsent letters can be really um, helpful, really helpful. Even using a sentence stem like something I wanted to tell you today, and just oh
1: beautiful writing it. I just saw something
2: on TV
1: uh, about it. It had a little girl who was whose aunt, who she loved, and uh, had died, and she used to write all these letters to her aunt while she was alive, and now she is. Made this box that she decorated, and she would write. She continued to write to her aunt every day, uh, and you know she was you know like her aunt was in heaven, and she was sending her these letters every day, and she would put them in this special decorated box. I,
2: I thought that was just so precious. That's so sweet. And who's you know? I mean, this makes me think about the whole, the whole field of. Calling con- called continuing bonds or remembering conversations. Who's to say that there's not some communication between the living and the dead? You know, I, I hear stories all the time that just make my hair stand up. They're so beautiful, and you know, you never know what these these thoughts or writings or you just don't know where they're going. You know, right? There, there's a, a certain mystery
1: to life. An- another. Th- piece that you suggest is Making Art. And um, you used uh, the poet um, Jane Hirschville, and she writes, suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. Art isn't a superficial addition to our lives. It is as necessary as oxygen. And I, I love the work of Jane, the poet Jane Hirschville.
2: And um, making art, uh, how can this be helpful? Well, I think people have different ways of processing grief, and um, art really brings, draws on the other side of the brain. It draws on images and colors and a different form of expression. And for some people, uh, writing is just not the, th- the way for them to go. But art is. I have a woman in my, in my um, cancer group, who discovered making glass uh, when she got diagnosed with cancer and her whole life has just changed as a result of starting to see herself doing something artful. And it's not about creating art. It's about the process and what the process does. It's not about, is this good or does this have value? It's about using images and using colors and using the other side of our brain to hold and, and be with our grief
1: you know, I, I feel like color you you mentioned color can can be healing. And I know when Michael first died for for that year, I have this um, crystal mala beads and and there there are all these colors, uh, they're cut crystal and they're all these colors of the rainbow. And I just I, I had this, Compulsion to add color to my life, so I would put these beads on underneath my clothes. Nobody else could see; it was kind of secret. But I would put these colors close to my heart, and and somehow it
2: it really helped me uh, to add color. Well, you know, that reminds me of a quote by Rumi, and I can't pull up the exact words, but it's something about uh, follow what you love; it will not lead you astray. <laughs> And I love that you just, without knowing why or anything, you just did it. And for whatever reason, it helped. And it's like trusting our instincts. It's so important to trust our instincts towards what's healing. And each chapter in the book is a different... A resource for holding grief, for being with your grief, something that in the literature has shown to strengthen your capacity to be with sorrow. So, there's a chapter on nature, being outside. There's a chapter on writing and art. There's a chapter on community, gratitude, kindness. So, you you, you find the portal that works for you. Then Hopefully, there's more than one, and maybe there's six or seven, but not every chapter is is right, but that's why we put the art in because it's a really important uh, it's a really important form of expression.
1: And you you mentioned briefly about uh, the beloved community. I mean, having a a grief friend or a bereavement group, whatever you can do to surround yourself with um, a community that we
2: don't go into a total cave of isolation. Right. You know, one of the things that I hear in my bereavement group a lot is uh, I'll hear something like this. I could only say this in here, but I'm sleeping with my husband's clothes on because I want to remember his scent. Or a friend of mine said to me recently, I would only tell you this, Claire. I'm sleeping with my dog's favorite toy, who she'd lost her 14-year-old companion. And she was ashamed to tell, tell anybody. And when I hear people in my group say, I would only say this here, I realize how much work we have to do to get grief normalized in the culture. Because these are things we should be able to tell one another without judgment, without shame, without guilt, without regret. And it it saddens me because everybody's doing them. But the privacy of pain, it obstructs our grief. And it's very unfortunate. Because right now we're all grieving. Everybody's grieving something with COVID.
1: One of the big ones, I think, for me is grieving normal. We've left normal, and for a and it'll never be the same. No matter if the vaccines work and, and, and we're able to be together once more, um, we'll never uh, go back quite to where things really were, were
2: before. We can't unknow what we know now. And we shouldn't go back to the way they were. We'd yes. be wiser f- for what we've been through. And hopefully it'll be a reordering of what's essential, um, a prioritizing of relationships, of a more balanced life between work and play, you know, and family. You know, hopefully we will be different for this in a positive way.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> grief has a, a way also, um, as you said earlier in the program, it, it comes in waves and it sometimes will sneak up on us and kind of grab us suddenly. And and as I said earlier, I feel like this is something that helps us to know that we are alive, that we're awake, that that... Things are, are, are as they should be, even though it's, it's difficult and it, you feel sorrow, and we don't want to feel sorrow, but it makes us feel alive.
2: Well, it also connects us to people. Yes, yes. people with our connections.
1: Exactly, exactly. Claire, I want to thank you so much for being with
2: us on New Dimensions today. Thank you so much for having me, Justine. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: I've been speaking with Claire B. Willis, and she's the co-author with Marnie Crawford Samuelson of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to our website, openingtogrief.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3724.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge